Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Hello, and welcome to the Vulgar History Podcast. My name is Anne Foster, and this is a pandemic super special mini episode where we're going to be looking at a past pandemic in global history and what people did about it at the time. And today we're going to be looking at smallpox, which is a disease that has been around for a very long time. So we're looking specifically at the events that led to the development of the smallpox vaccine, because um, just so you know, smallpox has been completely eradicated. And if for some whatever reason it comes back, uh, a vaccine exists. So that's good news. Um, yeah, smallpox was officially eradicated, declared eradicated on May 8th, 1980. So um, that long ago, <clears throat> 40 years ago-ish. So um, the sources I used to prepare this mini episode were a book called Get Well Soon, History's Worst Plagues and the Heroes Who Fought Them by Jennifer Wright, which is a great book. And I'm probably going to Fine. There was, as I was reading through it, it's just a bunch of um, really interesting sort of anecdotes, stories about different pandemics, etc. And I kept finding things in that book that made me think would be good uh, mini-sodes, so I'm sure I'll, I'll be citing that again later. Um, also an article in Gizmodo by Kiona Smith-Strickland called Princesses, Slaves, and Explosives, The Scandalous Origin of Vaccines. Um, I got some info from Wikipedia and then also an article from uh, smithsonian.com which I'll explain a bit more what that was about when we get to that part of the story. So what is smallpox? So the thing is that um, smallpox, you get a dangerously high fever accompanied by headaches, back pain, and vomiting, painful sores open in your mouth and nose, and a rash spreads all over your body. Blisters form and fill with pus. These pustules eventually scab over and dry up. And it has a fatality rate of about 30%. So about 30% of people who catch smallpox at all will die, and the rest will live with scars left behind by the pustules. Um, Somewhat famously, Queen Elizabeth I had a run-in with smallpox, and she there was a whole thing where it seemed like she was going to die, and this is when she was still pretty young, and the whole thing was like, but who will be her heir? And it was a whole drama. She recovered, um, but the scars from the smallpox are... And I haven't double-checked this. I'm just telling you this based on what I read somewhere. Um, I believe that because of the scars, that's why she started wearing so much um, thick white makeup. And the makeup was, of course, lead-based. And that was a whole other scenario. So smallpox, horrible um, things happen with it when you catch it. So it's caused by the variola virus. Um, Let's see. So chickenpox 
which is caused by a different virus, bears some resemblance and rarely kills anyone. Um, but one of the reasons that the death rate is so much higher for smallpox versus chickenpox is that um, smallpox makes your immune system go nuts. You die because your immune system kills you. So the technical term is an uncontrolled immune response. Your immune system identifies an intruding virus or bacteria, and in its attempt to rid the body of the danger, basically freaks out. Um, chemicals are released in the bloodstream to fight the infection and trigger inflammation throughout the body. Organs are compromised and may shut down. If your immune system attacks your heart and your heart stops pumping blood effectively, your cells don't have oxygen. Um... And you die. If it attacks your kidneys, your blood can be purified and you die. So that's it was it's been a thing. We'll get to it for a very long time. This is a thing that killed a lot of people. Um, we're not talking about the whole history of smallpox, but it was a big part of the Spanish conquest of uh, Central America in the sense that the Spanish people brought over the germs for smallpox and something like 95% of the indigenous people died. Um, but also well into the 18th century, something like 400,000 people in Europe would die of smallpox as well. The thing about it, though, is that people who survived smallpox, those like other 70%, uh, developed immunity. And a small degree of immunity could be passed down through parents, which is interesting. Um, one of the reasons perhaps why it was so especially deadly for the Inca and Aztec people when they encountered the Spanish, as that smallpox, like so many illnesses, is thought to have originated with farm animals, especially cattle, but also horses and sheep, and then crossed species to infect humans. And the thing is that in European culture, um, just culturally, uh, they had a lot of contact with animals, like there was the animals, horses, etc., would sleep in barns, and there might be people close to those barns and stuff, whereas the Inca and Aztec people had very little to no um, contact with those animals. There was llamas, but the llamas just kind of hung out in the mountains, so there wasn't that um, close relationship, so the disease just wouldn't have manifested there in the same way until the Spanish invaded. But again, that is not what today's mini-episode is about, because this is just a mini-episode I can't get into every outbreak of smallpox, but that was a notable and horrifying one. So... Um, as far back as ancient Roman times, it was understood that people who had survived smallpox once did not get the disease again. So there were uh, various of, um, types of things that people thought you could do to make yourself not get sick. And one of those methods is what became known as, uh, variolation. So, which is sort of exposing people who don't have smallpox to some, um, bodily fluid from people who currently have smallpox. So the practice, this practice, seems to have sprung up independently in several places, in India, China, West Africa, and elsewhere. Um, in 570 AD, people in Europe started calling it variolation, which comes from the Latin name for smallpox, variola. And remember, it comes from the variola virus. So variolation usually meant rubbing pus from a smallpox pustule, um, a good ripe one, the runnier the better, into a cut or scratch on a healthy person's arm. And although the method in China was that people would soak a cotton ball in infected pus and stick it up their noses. So the effect of it is to expose people to a controlled amount of smallpox in the hopes that they would um, develop immunity to it and then be immune to it forever because people who had had smallpox were less likely to get it again. Um... 
Other methods of transfer might include rubbing infected bits of scab on open wounds or snorting smallpox crusts up your nose. The uninfected person would usually develop the disease, but in a less severe form. So, I mean, you'd still have a higher chance of dying of smallpox if you had variolation treatment, but less of a chance than if you just caught smallpox in the wild, effectively. Uh, So, in the Northern Caucasus Mountains... Women of the Circassian ethnic group traditionally inoculated their children at about six months using this variolation technique, and the Circassian women carried this knowledge with them when they were trafficked to Turkey as sex slaves, um, which was a common fate for many Circassians up until the early 20th century. So the what would happen? Here it's a, a descriptor. So the French philosopher Voltaire described the situation in 1778. The Circassians are poor, and their daughters are beautiful, and indeed it is in them they chiefly trade. They furnish with beauties the seraglios of the Turkish sultan, of the Persian sophi, and of all those who are wealthy enough to purchase and maintain such precious merchandise. So these were legendarily attractive-looking women who became members of the harem of the Turkish um, sultan. So the women who ended up in the Ottoman sultan's harem, would, they left their mark on Turkish culture which is this technique of variolation that they had. They were one of many cultural groups who had discovered it and had been using it for quite a while. Uh, so again, Voltaire says, the Turks, who are people of good sense, soon adopted this custom inasmuch as that there is not a Bassa in Constantinople, but communicates the smallpox to his children of both sexes immediately upon their being weaned. Uh, inoculation first caught on in Turkey in the late 1600s because of the Circassian women. And we're going to see what happened from there on. So uh, the injection would be done on, as well, young girls who were being considered for the harem. The injection would be done on parts of the body where, even if there were some scarring, it would be less likely to mar their beauty, which was what was most literally valuable about them um, because they were being treated as merchandise, these girls. Uh, smallpox was a killer, but it was also referred to as a beauty's enemy. Um, people would lose their good looks. Uh, their face would get these scars on it. Some people lose their sight and become blind. Uh, Let's see. And then also variolation wasn't like super safe, obviously. Um, It would help some people not get smallpox later, but also you could have a severe reaction to the smallpox sample and die. Uh, There was a 2-3% to fatality rate from variolation, but again, the fatality rate of smallpox itself is 30%, so it's it was risky for sure, but it did seem to help a lot of people. And then, so in December of 1715, Lady Mary Wortley Montague was the daughter of an English duke and the wife of a member of parliament who, side note, uh, she'd eloped to marry this parliamentarian a couple of years earlier because to avoid marrying another person, and the person she didn't want to marry was named Clotworthy Skeffington, which is quite a British sounding name. Um, she was witty, she was beauty, she was the toast of King George I's court, and then she caught smallpox, but she got, her beauty was destroyed, or whatever. Um, but that's okay. She was fine otherwise. So she left London in 1716 with her husband to go to Turkey, where her husband was the king's new ambassador to the Ottoman court. And while there, she observed this tradition of the harem girls who were, um, inoculating their children, um perhaps one another, with this uh, variolation-type treatment. So the way that she described it, Mary Montague said, 
there is a set of old women who make it their business to perform the operation every autumn in the month of September when the great heat is abated. People send to one another to know if any of their family has a mind to have the smallpox. They make parties for this purpose, and when they are all met, commonly 15 or 16 together, the old woman comes with a nutshell full of the matter of the best sort of smallpox, so just like <laughs> a nutshell full of pus, um, and asks which vein you please to have open. She immediately rips open that you offer to her with a large needle, which gives you no more pain than a common scratch, and puts into the vein as much matter as can lie on the head of her needle, and after that binds up the little wound with a hollow bit of shell, and in this manner opens four or five veins. So Mary Montague saw this happen and saw that it was working, that it was successful. So she convinced the embassy surgeon, because she was there as the ambassador's wife, she convinced the embassy surgeon to variolate her own five-year-old son, Edward, and the procedure went well, and she was now a woman on a mission. So, again, Mary's own words were, I am patriot enough to take pains to bring this useful invention into fashion in England, and I should not fail to write to some of our doctors very particularly about it. If I knew any one of them that I had thought had virtue enough to destroy such a considerable branch of their revenue for the good of mankind. But that distemper is too beneficial to them not to expose to all their resentment the hardy white that should undertake to put an end to it. Perhaps if I live to return, I may, however, have courage to war with them. So she knew that doctors would not be into this, uh, but she just saw for the betterment of all mankind, as she phrased it, that she this was going to be her mission. She wanted to help prevent more deaths from smallpox. Uh, so she got Charles Maitland, who again, as the embassy surgeon. She just sounds like a very persuasive woman. So she got the embassy surgeon to inoculate, to variolate her four-year-old daughter in a demonstration for the royal physicians. It worked. And in August, King George gave Maitland permission to conduct a trial of the technique on prisoners in London's Newgate prison. So this is all, you know, happening outside of any sort of like regulations for the safety of vaccine testing. But the good news is, this it was a good <laughs> that no one was like it helped people so six men from the prison volunteered on the promise of the king's pardon for the survivors so for them it was the deal is you know get this treatment and if you don't die you'll be freed from prison so they're like sure um and guess what it survived so all six prisoners survived and later proved to be immune to smallpox and so they moved to the next stage of testing um so maitland again this doctor uh, began testing the inoculation again it's just like ooh, the methods are like Bleh, but they uh this is what they did so he went on to test on orphan children um who were slightly less expendable than convicted criminals and the orphans also survived so then he moved on to inoculating uh princesses so what happened here is that um in april of 1722 so the king was clearly very into this um, and Maitland inoculated the daughters of the Princess of Wales. After that, inoculation started to catch on in England so and elsewhere. So King Frederick II of Prussia had all of his soldiers treated, as did George Washington at Valley Forge in 1778. People in France were more resistant to the procedure, causing Voltaire to fume. Had variolation been practiced in France, it would have saved the lives of thousands. And then, so variolation, that is the journey of this... Um, injecting people with a little bit of the live virus and how that would save a lot of people. And then we move into vaccination. So in 1774, a Dorset cattle farmer named Benjamin Jesty 
along with two of his female servants, Anne Notley and Mary Reed, had been infected with a disease called cowpox. So cowpox is a disease that happened to cows. And when humans got it, it just, it wasn't as deadly as smallpox. It was sort of like a very mild version of smallpox. So, and the people who often would get cowpox were people like milkmaids, like dairymaids, like people who were there um, milking cows, etc. So when an epidemic of smallpox came through town, Benjamin Jesty decided to try to give his wife Elizabeth and two eldest sons immunity by infecting them with cowpox. Because the thing is that people he saw, and other people did, we'll talk about them too in a minute, a seeming connection between cowpox and smallpox, such that people who had had cowpox before tended to not get smallpox later. So Benjamin Jesty infected his wife and two eldest sons by with cowpox. He took his family f- to a cow at a farm in nearby town that had the disease and using a darning needle transferred pustule, pustular material from the cow by scratching their arms. The boys had mild local reactions and quickly recovered. Um, and the wife, her arm became inflamed, but she also recovered. His Jesse's experiment was met with hostility by his neighbors. He was labeled inhuman and was hooted at, reviled, and pelted whenever he attended markets in the neighborhood. Uh, the introduction of an animal disease into a human body was thought disgusting, and some even feared the metamorphosis into horned beasts, like the people would turn into cows. But uh, the treatment, it was demonstrated when his sons didn't catch smallpox, even though they were exposed to it later on. The epigraph on his tombstone... And again, this man's name is Benjamin Jesty. His tombstone calls him an upright, honest man, particularly noted for having been the first person known that introduced the cowpox by inoculation, and who, from his great strength of mind, made the experiment from the cow on his wife and two sons in the year 1774. So then in 1791, a German teacher named Peter Plett inoculated three children with cowpox. He had learned about the connection from milkmaids, and... When he reported his results to professors of medicine at the nearby University of Kiel, they basically ignored him, and so he just resumed his teaching career, and that was it for him. But then, another guy named Edward Jenner comes along. So, Edward Jenner had been very elated against smallpox as a child, in the traditional way, because by that point, Mary Montague's crusade has, was such that it had become sort of a normal thing, that people would just be very elated. So again, having a bit of smallpox injected into children who don't have smallpox. Um, Edward Jenner was intrigued by a dairymaid. He heard declare, I shall never have smallpox for I have had cowpox. I shall never have an ugly pockmarked face. So in 1796, Edward Jenner found a milkmaid with cowpox and injected the matter from one of her sores into an eight-year-old boy. Um, the boy's name was, uh, I have it written down here, uh, James Phipps. So... He took pus from blisters and scratched them to the arm of eight-year-old James Phipps, who was the son of Jenner's gardener. After a short and mild illness, Phipps recovered and proved immune to smallpox. And so Jenner coined the term vaccination after the Latin root for from the cow, the way that vash is the French word for cow. So it means it's related to the connection between cows and, and saving people from smallpox, effectively. So... Um, after he had done this, word spread. So children lined up on Sundays to get scratched by a doctor, to get scratched by him. Um, the kids were among the earliest patients ever to be given a small bit of cowpox as a way to protect them against a deadly virus known as smallpox, which killed 80% of the kids that infected in London, uh, three out of every 10 people at the time. Some weeks, the queue, the lineup on Edward Jenner's property, grew so long that it snaked across the one-acre 
property a sprawling lawn ending at the entrance of a small thatched hut into the next to the vinery uh originally built as a reading cottage the structure had been transformed into what edward jenner dubbed the temple of vaccinia the site of one of britain's first pub first public health services so a friend told jenner that selling his vaccine could make him rich but wealth wasn't what jenner was looking for Instead, he self-published his discoveries in 1798, documenting evidence of vaccination success for the first time. The same year he published this information, he sent vaccine material to a medical missionary in Newfoundland in Canada to carry out the first smallpox vaccinations in North America. He was met by skepticism, as did other people who, because this whole like cows to human thing, people just thought it was uh, gross. So there was initial skepticism from the medical community, but smallpox vaccinations began across Europe, the Spanish colonies, and the newly formed United States. Napoleon Bonaparte vaccinated his troops in 1805. Um, Thomas Jefferson vaccinated his family. Um, in 1806, Thomas Jefferson said, Medicine has never before produced any single improvement of such utility. You have erased from the calendar of human afflictions one of its greatest. Mankind can never forget that you have lived. <clears throat> So these days, the word vaccine is a generic term for any substance that causes the body to develop immunity to a disease. Usually vaccines are made from dead or weakened forms of the virus being vaccinated against. Um, modern vaccines use viruses or antigens from viruses grown in cultures in a laboratory, not actual pus from people's actual blisters. Um, in the 20th century alone, the smallpox virus killed an estimated 300 million people, according to the World Health Organization. In 1959, the group launched a global eradication program, and 40 years later, on May 8, 1980, it declared smallpox eradicated. So far, it is the only disease that has been completely wiped out in humans through a vaccination-type situation. There's other diseases that were around and then mysteriously vanished, but this is one that like was actively removed. Uh, so this was the first building block on the road to safe vaccines in general, which have since been developed for many life-threatening diseases such as polio, measles, meningitis, and diphtheria. And I wanted to mention as well, so Edward Jenner, who was one of a few people who figured out this cowpox, smallpox connection, but was the one who really um, advocated for it and sort of made it widespread. So his home is, his former home, is now a museum that is called Dr. Jenner's House. It's called Dr. Jenner's House Museum and Garden in Berkeley, England, and it's privately funded um, due to COVID-19 without visitor income. The future of this museum is at risk. So I'm, they have a crowdfunding page, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes because as they say in their video, Dr. Jenner's House needs you. So his house museum, which is, it looks like a really sweet, I've not personally been there, um, but I, when I am able to go to the United Kingdom, it's a place that I really hope to be able to visit. So at this museum, so it's at the same place where Edward Jenner carried out his pioneering research into vaccination. Um, they celebrate his achievements and show how curiosity can change the world. So if you want to read about the museum and help support it, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. But otherwise, that is the storied and interesting and surprising history of smallpox vaccination and variolation. Um, I particularly, as a feminist historian, I appreciate how the dairymaids, um, how these, um, the victims of this sex trafficking, these sex slaves, um, how they ended up bringing the information about this, like that their town 
their area had figured this out. They brought it with them when they were trafficked. Um, then Mary Montague saw this happening, understood how amazing and game-changing this could be. She brought it back, convinced a bunch of people about it. Really, it paved the way for for a lot of medical treatments that we have now. Um, and again, I'm just glad in general to know that smallpox has been completely eradicated. But in case it comes back for whatever reason, there's a stockpile of the vaccine um, somewhere in the U.S., I think. Anyway, this is the Vulgar History Podcast a mini episode. My name is Anne Foster. I hope you're all staying well, and I'll talk to you all next time. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.